Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, December 2nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser, joining me in the studio today via the magic of Skype. He's uh, he's He's been through the ringer here, folks. He had Thanksgiving, he had, he had a wedding anniversary, now he's getting ready for Christmas. The kids are just running him ragged here. It's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Other than a terrible football weekend, it's going pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah, it wasn't the greatest football week for you between your Eagles and the Gamecocks, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, South Carolina. That's not the biggest surprise. I mean, they've just always not quite been. I mean, I remember South Carolina back in the day of like George Rogers, right? I mean, that that was the South Carolina that I remember growing up. Um, and, and it does seem like Clemson has always kind of been the South Carolina football school. Yeah, I mean, especially lately. I mean, right now, there's no shame in losing to Clemson right now. No, no, there, no, there, not at all. There is shame in the Eagles losing <laughs> to the Dolphins right now. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit of a um, that, that was a bit of a surprise showing there. But you know, I mean, geez, you got what four games left this season, so time for them to turn it on and and um, and see where it gets them. But yeah, the, the NFC East is certainly earning that nickname of NFC Least this year, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I I can't argue with that. Nope. I mean, the, the Redskins looked good this week, and that's saying a lot. Listen, they're mathematically still in it, which is just astounding. So, I mean, I think we'll just leave it at that and move forward. How about that? Uh, so, on today's financial show, we are going to get to a listener email uh, where we've got more of the last stock you bought and why, not to mention the stocks that Matt and I are both watching. But we're going to start off today... Uh, looking back all the way to the end of 2018, why, you ask? Well, that's when our own Matt Frankel published his five bold predictions for 2019. And we talked about these on a show as the year began. Uh, we want to just check in and we want to see how these predictions are shaking out. And, and, and let's be clear, these are bold predictions, right? These are not predictions that are just wishy-washy, the stock market might go up or the stock market might go down. You're making some bold calls here, Matt, but we're going to tackle these five. We're going to go one at a time. Uh, we'll see how it's it's shaking out thus far. We'll talk a little bit about why it's working out or maybe why it's not. And uh, maybe we'll we'll get into what we're thinking maybe 2020 holds as well. So let's start off here with the, with the very first bold prediction and, and your prediction that the trade war will come to an end. And Matt, it does seem like at this point in the game, the hyperbole has only increased regarding the trade war. It, it's almost like it's a weekly back and forth about what kind of headline can make this this market go up or down. Yeah, and, and to be clear, it's totally possible we could still get that phase one deal by the end of the year. Yeah, that's a good point. So, it, is, it is just the beginning of December. That's that's fair. So I'm not giving myself an F on this one just yet. But having said that, the trade war is not close to over yet. Um, I'd be surprised if the trade war extended past the 2020 elections, um, just because that's something that people want to see over. I think Donald Trump's going to turn up the turn up the heat on China, and be more, on the other hand, be more kind of willing to compromise, if you will. But so far, the trade war's kind of got it heated up a little bit more than I had predicted at the end of the end of 20. 2018. Um, I'm not saying I totally disagree with everything that's going on, but it, you know, both sides have been very slow to to blink on this one. Yeah, you know, I started thinking about it more and more as as the year was going on, and it's it's 
it's almost like you have two different forces at play here and they're working against one another. It's what it's what is really best for everyone, right? Coming out with some sort of fair and equitable solution versus perhaps the political side here, right? I mean, it does feel like and I'm not I'm not blaming President Trump for this. I mean, I think any politician really is going to look at a situation like this and try to play to their advantage. But it almost feels like he's trying to take this in in play this card more or less going into this 2020 election season. It's starting to feel like, to me at least, he, you know, he wants to drag this out as long as he can so that he can paint as positive a picture as possible leading up to the to the election in November next year. Yeah, and I mean that's that's kind of how I'm feeling about it. it. It's a big campaign promise of his was that he was going to get China to really play ball when it comes to trade, and he, he wants to do that as close as possible to the next election for right. obvious reasons. So we'll see how it goes, but that's one that so far I've gotten wrong. Okay, well, you know, it's it's there's still some time left, so so we'll hope for the best for you. Uh, let's jump to number two. <laughs> this one's kind of this one's kind of funny, actually. Maybe chuckle when I just read the <laughs> read the lead here. <laughs> number two, the Fed will raise interest rates, not just once or twice. Um, okay, I know. this one is. I think if, if, if this is probably going to be just this isn't going to work out in your favor. I think, regardless yeah. of how much time we have left in the year. Yeah, no, if I had to give myself an F on one of these, it would probably be this one. Um, Well, but in fairness, that one kind of ties in with the first prediction. If the trade war had ended, um, the economy could be in a a completely different position. Um, The economy slowed down a little bit more than than I thought. Um, You know, and to be clear, I don't agree with what the Fed's done. I don't think they should have cut interest rates like they have. Um, I've discussed that on – we both kind of discussed that on the show. Yeah, we've talked about um, that through the year. Yeah, unemployment still looks great. Um, you know, Economic growth looks good. You know, we're finally getting some wage growth. The only thing that kind of justifies rate cuts is the lack of inflation. Um, yeah. But I really don't think that was enough to really pull the trigger. I think the, the economy was just humming along and – I. I Maybe with the trade war going on and escalating like it did, you couldn't really justify any rate increases anymore. But I still don't think you really needed to cut as much as they did. But that's definitely a bold prediction that kind of went in the complete opposite direction of what I said. <laughs> well, and your your inflation point there is a good one because I do think that is – I mean that's what's been guiding – this logic, I think, for the most part, is I mean, it's all it's all been about inflation, and as long as inflation remains in check, then you know there really are no concerns there. But it it does there at least is the feeling, and, and I, I know I'm not alone here, but there is the feeling at least that there there was some political pressure um, applied here, and in in while I'm sure. You know, the Fed would never admit this. I mean, there is supposed to be that separation, right? Making decisions based on the state of the economy, not on a political agenda. It does feel like there was some political pressure there applied via Twitter, um, almost <laughs> almost on a weekly basis. Um, and, and I wonder. I mean, that that it, it does feel like the rate cuts weren't necessary. It does feel like it, it was something that was just added to the mix to try to keep this market chugging along. Um, and so, investors have obviously loved you know, that, that byproduct of it. But by the same token, I mean, we've talked about this before, particularly with the negative rates discussions that we've had and the listener questions that we had throughout the year. I mean, you can only go so low. And after you run out of that ammunition, what do you do next? Right. That's what I 
that's kind of where I'm standing. Um, I think they should have kept that ammunition in their back pocket for when we actually needed it, not just to kind of extend this market rally because the flip side of that is if things go wrong and you really need to cut rates, then you have limited room to do so at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's probably a safe bet. Maybe your bold prediction for 2020 should be that rates will go up. <laughs> I think you could use that one again for 2020 and you'd probably be right. Um so so hey, we'll we'll uh, we'll see. Uh number 3, bank stocks will stage a big comeback. Uh, Matt, how have bank stocks fared so far this year? I give myself a, an A on this one. Me too. I was um, thinking the same thing. You got that one. Ba- bank stocks have outperformed the market. I mean, in a year when the S&P is up 27%, bank stocks are up about 30% Nice. when you look at total return. So bank stocks were one of the worst performing areas of 2018. They're one of the best performing areas of 2019. Of course, we still have another month to go. But I think that's especially impressive given that we've had a couple of rate cuts because banks tend to make more money when rates are higher. And that uh, was I was going to so, jump into that here with you because I, I feel like yeah that that to me is what that flies in the face of what we would have thought would have happened here. I mean banks, yeah, like you said, I mean in these low rate environments, it's just a more difficult time for them. I mean it's just more difficult for them to ring that profitability out. But for whatever reason, uh, the market has has been willing, you know, to look past that. I mean, net interest margins are low. You know, I mean, it's it's not like these net interest margins have just all of a sudden been just just shooting back up. I mean, there's not some some big um, acceleration in growth there. So why why is why do you think that is that bank stocks have performed so well in the face of an environment that that would would lead us to believe they wouldn't? Well, they generally keep growing more than um, experts thought they would. But all banks are still growing their loan and deposit portfolios. Um, people, consumer confidence remains high. People are still, you know, buying cars and borrowing money for that. Yeah. Buying houses, borrowing money for that. Uh, the personal loan market is is growing, and and um, all the big banks are kind of throwing their hat in that. So there's a lot of big growth avenues that are going on. So even though the the interest margins aren't really what they would hope for. Um, it's they're they're still growing and that's kind of what the market's the market was fearing that interest margins would fall off a cliff and growth would go away so the the growth didn't really go away so banks are in a great position right now if interest rates do start coming back up as you mentioned yeah and one thing i was thinking about over the course of the year we've seen some news that i mean banks clearly are in the business of of money right i mean they're they're Loaning out money, they're lending money to borrowers, and they are taking money in for deposits. And we're seeing a lot of banks that are really focused on getting those lower cost deposit bases so they can at least handle this lower interest rate environment. But, you know, we saw through the year uh, there were some adjustments made to how FICO scores, credit scores are calculated. Ultimately, it's it's making it's it's giving consumers, uh, a better opportunity to borrow through improved FICO scores, and I think FICO scores now are are better than they have been in a, in a long time, and that can be for any number of reasons. I mean, part of that I'm sure is is probably making it a little bit easier on the consumer, and part of that is that the consumer is in a pretty good spot right now via employment um, and and whatnot. But it does seem like at least through those conditions between low rates and and more qualified borrowers. I mean, you're going to have more people borrowing more money, and that ultimately is what banks are looking for. Yeah, no, it's been a good good year for the banks, better than experts had predicted. And I, 
I think we'll get a good, another good one in 2020, even if the economy doesn't do that great, just because, you know, like I said, more qualified borrowers, the markets are bigger and, you know, the consumer confidence remains high. So it's, it's other than, I mean, normally when the Fed's cutting rates, you think it's going to be a bad economy, but that really isn't the case. And we're seeing that reflected in bank results. And certainly, these big banks are making a lot of investments in fintech, right? I mean, a lot of these big banks are making investments in this new technology that's helping guide our banking system, our financial system forward. And I don't think we want to overlook that because we talk a lot about companies like Square and PayPal and all the great things that they're doing. Stripe, which isn't publicly traded, but still in that same in that same sandbox. I mean, the fact that you have big banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America. I mean. These are banks that are not only investing a lot of money in technology today, but they they invested a lot of that money a number of years back, right? I mean, they, they've they've got tremendous online banking presences uh, today, and it's not like that just happened overnight. So I, I think there was some seeing around that corner a number of years back in understanding the value of having that robust tech presence, and, and it, it seems like to me at least a lot of the big banks are, are benefiting from that today. Sure, that's a good point. Um, banks are, as a whole, just becoming more efficient, and that's really accelerated in the past few years. Just to kind of give you an idea, uh, if you make a deposit through a mobile app, it costs the bank roughly one tenth of what it does if you go into the bank and make a deposit in person. And how so? It is so key so, to be able to take a picture of that check and just deposit it in your account. Like, I mean, I never get checks anymore, but the two times a year that I do, I mean, <laughs> instead of having to actually get in my car and go somewhere just to to, to photo capture that thing and deposit it, I mean, man, that is that is an advancement. <laughs> yeah, so that's something that I think will keep kind of driving margins higher over time and just being a a nice positive catalyst for the sector, regardless of what the economy is doing. I mean. The the tech has just advanced so much in the past few years, and it's saving banks, you know, a ton of money. I mean, in 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 my immediate area, there used to be four Bank of America branches, and there's now two because they just don't need that much of a physical presence. Yeah, they're running a more efficient operation, and I see that trend continuing. Yeah, and I think the other trend that I'm I'm looking for certainly is consolidation. We saw a little bit of it this year. BB and T and SunTrust being uh, one of the more obvious ones. I mean, I think we'll see a lot of. A lot of consolidation, even even um, with the smaller banks as well. I mean, I we talked earlier in the year about the Ameris Bank Core and Fidelity uh, tie up there, which which gave Ameris a bigger presence, certainly in commercial markets, real estate markets like Orlando and Charleston and Atlanta. Um, I suspect consolidation will be another another um, theme for 2020 as well. Maybe that'll be my prediction for 2020: is that we'll just see accelerated consolidation, but. Um, Okay, moving on. Number four, Apple will become the largest U.S. company once again. Probably not the most bold of your of your uh, prognostications there, Matt. But I mean, we've certainly hit a point at least where Apple um, did become the largest company once again. Well, let me push back on you for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> I think do. this was kind of a a, a bold prediction, and I'll tell you why. Please. One at the time I made it, Apple had just plunged twenty seven percent after after its earnings. That's a big drop for a company that was worth about a trillion dollars. That's a very big. So, drop. at the time, the gap between Apple and the you know Microsoft and Amazon was pretty wide. Actually, uh, Microsoft I think was you know three hundred billion dollars more than Apple at one point. Yeah, and it was a very specific prediction. I predicted not only would it get back to a trillion. Not only would it get reach a new all-time high, which it actually did today, it just reached another new all-time high. You know, and 
and that it would surpass Microsoft, which right now Apple's back up to one point one eight trillion. So beat the trillion. Looking like it's Microsoft, got Microsoft by just a tad. Microsoft is one point one four trillion. Wow. And like I said, Apple continues to hit new all-time highs, and it just did this morning before the market kind of reversed course. Um, but it's a good time to be an Apple shareholder. This is actually out of the five. This is probably the one I think I got the most correct. But it, like you said, this was not my boldest prediction, being <laughs> totally honest. Well, um, you, you didn't. It, you, when, <laughs> go when, ahead. When Apple was, Apple was worth about $100 a share less than it is now at the time. Apple's up like something like 50% this year. So I it might have been a kind of bold prediction. No, I think now that now that you frame it that way, I mean, you, you make a good point there. I mean, the, the stock really, it really had taken a big tumble. I mean, it, for you to say what you said required um, the company really to fire on all cylinders, and then for the market to recognize that, and and so to to your point there, I think that actually was a little bit bolder than I was giving you credit for. And and you know, hey, listen, I mean, whether it's Apple or Microsoft, I mean, two companies that have just done phenomenally well, um, not only this year but over, but over the past several years, and really companies that are just lighting lighting the path forward in all of this cool tech stuff that we're doing. And I mean, I tell you, with the the augmented reality service that I run here, I mean, Apple and Microsoft are two bedrock. Holdings in that portfolio, and when you when you look into why, I mean, between Apple's AR kit software and between Microsoft's hardware with the Hololens and all of the software that they're developing in it, uh, it really is just phenomenal to see all of the different things these companies are doing. And um, I, you know, I, I expect, I mean, that growth won't be as torrid, but I really do expect these two companies um, to to again have just terrific 2020s and beyond. Yeah, and I mean, if <laughs> ten years ago, if I had told you that Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon would combine for more than three trillion in market cap, you would have called me crazy. <laughs> but I mean, it's been. But all three of those companies have done phenomenally well. Yes, they have. And like, there's like you said, they still all have a, a some nice growth avenue ahead of them. Yep. Like, tech isn't my specialty, but you know, I I know I know business and. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know recurring revenue models and things like that, and Apple has those going for him and has a lot of potential to keep him growing. It's a that area of the business is definitely a growth growth company, and it's altogether trading like a deep value stock. So indeed. All right. Well, number five. Lastly, Warren Buffett will buy something big. Um, I don't think he did. Did he? He hadn't. He didn't buy anything big yet this year, has he? No, he's tried a few yeah. times. Yeah. Um, his biggest investment this year was the $10 billion debt investment in uh, Occidental Petroleum. Oh, yeah. Um, that's the only real big thing he's done. And I, I wouldn't call that big even by Buffett's standards. Um, just Buffett had just over $100 billion at the end of 2018, and now he has 128. Whew. So he's definitely had, you know, been a net recipient of cash. Um, Sounds like he's really so, concerned about valuations. I mean, that that seems to be what really is stopping him from doing anything. He just doesn't like valuations where they are today. Yeah, he's tried to make a few other uh, investments and just kind of refuses to get involved in any kind of bidding work because he already thinks he already thinks things are generally expensive. So he's not going to get sucked into a bidding war and pay more than he's comfortable doing. As a shareholder, I get that. Um, 
I'm hoping he gets that cash pile up to about a trillion dollars and buys Apple. So <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. I mean, I you know, shoot, I could see him going a number of different ways. I mean, I think we, you and I, had both talked at one point about, um, I mean, them buying Square and it being a little bit more of a part of that financial system of the future. Um, I mean, to the point on valuations, and I do get that. I mean, I understand his. His history as an investor, how he grew up, and how he how he's invested all of his life, it is one of those things where I, you know I I want to push back on the valuation stuff a little bit because I mean we've seen it time and time again where you know really good businesses just tend to com- command these these higher valuations and sometimes that's okay particularly if it's something it's got some kind of a recurring revenue model or 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 if, if it just encourages repeat purchases and. I mean, I you know for the longest time. I mean, sheesh, I was telling him he ought to. I don't understand why he bought Kraft Heinz or you know invested in Kraft Heinz when. Um, I mean, to me, you know, listeners are going to know. I've said this more than once. I mean, the the McCormick idea was was a far better one, and I mean, I remember looking at McCormick back after they had just made that RB Foods acquisition and the stock sold down to somewhere in the ninety dollar range because the market was just. Very concerned it was going to cost a lot of money for them to make this acquisition, and they just didn't know that it was going to really work out for them. And today, we obviously see that it has worked out for them. And, and the, but I mean, my point is that McCormick stock looked expensive back at ninety dollars, and I mean, you look at it today. I think it's closing in on around one seventy. Um, you know, I don't know that it ever looks cheap, and sometimes just really good businesses don't ever really look cheap. Yeah, and it's also the kind of the the point where okay, you have one hundred twenty eight billion dollars. I get that things are expensive right now. But is it really worth the opportunity cost of just leaving that stuff in cash at zero growth, yep. as opposed to putting it to work at and earning you know returns for your shareholders, even if you think you're you're paying a little too much? I I'd have to think it's it's at some point it becomes silly to have that much idle cash sitting around earning nothing. And but I, I'm not Warren Buffett. Nope, nope, you're not. And uh, <laughs> and I imagine he will not let that uh, he will not let that money just sit there in 2020 either. I got to believe he's going to put something to work, doing something. Um, speaking of bold predictions, you have anything in the hopper here for 2020? Um, I think we're going to get a recession. That's my uh, bold prediction for 2020. I'm I'm a little more negative going into this year. I. Uh, I think we're finally we're, we're well overdue for a recession, but I think the ongoing trade war, the election coming up, I depending on the outcome of the election, it, it could really determine whether this prediction's correct or not. But I think we'll finally get a recession at least beginning in 2020. Yeah, I saw a data point a while back, and it goes back several several decades. I mean, hundred years or something. Um, that we've had a recession every decade, at least one recession every decade. We're getting ready to wrap up this decade sans recession. No recession in this decade. So, to your point about being overdue for one, yep, I think we are overdue for one. And whether that's something that occurs uh, because of fundamentals or political concerns later on in the year, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would be too terribly surprised. It does feel like uh, maybe a, a nice culling is in order <laughs> at some point here sooner rather than later. Uh, okay, well, let's pivot from the bold predictions. And given our last uh, point was they're talking about Buffett, we've got a listener email um, 
from Ron Burkett, and it talks a little bit about Berkshire. And so Ron asks, uh, hey, guys, just some thoughts on the Berkshire situation, of which I am not a shareholder. I seem to remember that during the Steve Jobs era, people were calling for a dividend from Apple, and they too said they could use the money better. Do you think that after Buffett and Munger are no longer running the show, there's a better chance of dividends and possible better investments? I know they don't want to overpay for anything, but can we all say Kraft Heinz? What do you think they're mad? Is it something that is more Buffett and Munger specific as to why they don't pay a dividend? Or do you feel like that's a culture thing that is that is really enmeshed and, and going to be more difficult to uh, to uproot? Well, I can answer both sides of that question. I think, no, you're not going to get a dividend. I think um, that's just not in Berkshire's culture because they're different than Apple in the sense that you they can invest in pretty much anything that they want to. You know, like Apple's never going to, you know, by a furniture company, uh, whereas that's something at Berkshire's, you know, that's a viable option for Berkshire. So I don't think you're going to get a dividend, but I do think once Buffett and Munger are not running the show anymore, you're going to see the investment strategy kind of pivot. Um, when you think of the people who are the two guys who are going to be in charge of uh, Berkshire's investment portfolio, um, Todd Combs and Ted Weschler, um, you're going to see they're right now they're managing about twelve billion dollars each, which is a drop in the bucket for Berkshire. Uh, but when you look at some of the recent investments they've made, they were the ones responsible for the Amazon investment, for example. Right. Uh, Stone Co- Stoneco that we've talked about many times. Oh yeah. Um, they were they were the original purchasers of Apple shares and got it on Buffett's radar. So I think you're going to see Buffett doesn't really understand tech, nor does Munger. Um, so I think you're going to see a more techy investment strategy coming from Berkshire. I could see them, once Ted and Todd are in charge of the whole portfolio, I could see, um, you know, like a Netflix or something like that being like a target for Berkshire, like those kind of companies, not necessarily Netflix, but something in that, you know, realm, like something that big, like you're going to see a lot of larger tech acquisitions, I think. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Um, and hey, Ron, thanks for the question. And I'll also make sure to add here. Ron says, uh, also the last stock I bought was American Tower. I don't see any smartphone data usage slowing down anytime soon. Uh, Ron, I tend to agree with you there. Those those towers uh, serve a very valuable purpose. So that American Tower purchase ought to work out very well for you. Uh, and that is a nice segue into our next segment, one of our favorites every week, the last stock you bought and why. You know, we always want to hear about the last uh, stock you bought and why. We want to hear all about the stocks that you guys are buying out there. So make sure to email us at industryfocus at fool.com or hit us up on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. Let us know the last stock you bought and why. Got a tweet from Low Key Luciano at Low EFL. He says, the last stock I purchased was Independence Realty Trust, ticker IRT, and Digital Realty Trust, DLR, both real estate positions with large growth opportunities. Matt, I bet you those are right up your alley. I have uh, Digital Realty is one of the biggest stocks in my portfolio. Those are both, I, I love the, the REIT environment right now. It's a great growth environment for those companies. Uh, Digital Realty just announced a big acquisition not long ago. They're going to be even even larger. They're already a massive company, but they're and data centers. There's no shortage of of growth in the need for data or secure data solutions. So I love those investments, um, especially Digital Realty. And 
I hope I don't plan on selling that one anytime soon. I've owned it for a while now. Nice. We got Blake at CBK underscore nine one. Blake says I bought the last stock I bought, Lavongo Health. Ticker LVGO. It's been on my watch list since its IPO earlier this year. Started my position before earnings last week. It passes the rule of 40. It's making the world healthier, happier, and richer with its management of diabetes and hypertension. And finally, Matthew Kleiman at MattK520 says, I just opened a small position in Virgin Galactic. Ticker SPCE. Following David G. Fool's advice, to invest in our best future. Space tourism will de-risk the technology and business. Suborbital point-to-point transport will change the world. Matt, I'm a space guy. I like this investment. I mean, I, I, you know, I, it, it's one of those companies I've enjoyed following since it went public. It's a little bit of a unique uh, situation there. Um, but we're going to, I think, see more and more of this stuff as time goes on. And I think to see Virgin Galactic out there uh, making waves early on is is a lot of fun. So you get two thumbs up from me on that purchase. Um, Matt, it's time for us to jump into the ones to watch. This is not this not the stocks that we're buying, but the stocks that we're watching. What's the stock you have uh, on your watch list here this coming week? Um, I'm watching Upwork. Um, ticker is UPWK, I believe. Uh, I should have looked that up before we recorded. <laughs> but anyway, um, Upwork just hit a new 52-week low today. They really crashed after their last earnings. They're below their IPO price, which was $15 a share. Um, this is the company that is kind of a, a portal for freelance work. Um, if you want a side hustle, check out Upwork.com. Um, I, I'm an independent contractor for The Motley Fool. I can tell you that I – and I get paid through Upwork – Love the platform, love what they're doing over there. I think the gig economy is just going to get better. Uh, just to kind of give you one stat, 10% of the population participated in, in gig work in 2005. Now it's closer to 20%. Wow. So I see this trend. Yeah, and I see this trend continuing as technology evolves and it becomes easier for people to work remotely. So I think Upwork's a great play on that. And especially now that it's so beaten down, it's... It's about half of what it was trading for at the end of its first trading day. So, Upwork. All right, Upwork. Um, I'm going to be keeping my eye on Slack, ticker WRK. Uh, I think everybody knows Slack at this point, but earnings are coming up on Wednesday. Just been a very very uh, volatile short period in the public markets for this company. And I mean, I, I certainly understand the concerns with Microsoft Teams. Um I think the team's data that the team's data user data can be a little bit uh, tricky to fully understand given how uh, it it interacts with the Windows operating system. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, Microsoft Teams is a very good product. So I, Slack has its work cut out for it in trying to compete in this space. Um, and I've been very critical of Slack of seeming uh, seemingly uh, being very slow to iterate and. Uh, become more than just what it was. I mean, the one thing that was always killing me, for example, was, I mean, to italicize something or to to put something in bold, it, it was almost like it, it was almost like you had to code it, um, as opposed to just having a nice little toolbar where you could just click a button. And so they finally seem to have fixed that issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it, do, it does seem like Microsoft Teams uh, is is 
gaining some traction, particularly with bigger enterprises, and that could be a problem for Slack. Uh, so I'm sure this this earnings report will give us some more insight as to uh, the number of users, how much those users are, are getting out of the platform, and really what I'd like to see is I'd like to see something. I'd like to hear something. Uh, convincing me that they are working on making this platform something more than it currently is, because it really still feels exactly the same as when we started using it over three years ago here at The Motley Fool. It's helpful, but it's not that helpful. And so, I really like them to become something more. And if we can see signs of that, then maybe there is something here from an investment standpoint. But for now, just going to keep my eyes on it and learn. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for us for this week. Matt, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us in the studio, as always. You got any big plans for the rest of the week? Oh, uh, not too much this week. Um, thankfully, college football's over. <laughs> I, I normally don't say that, but this year I do. Well, we will just look forward to next year then. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.